Welcome to the Kate Languages podcast. I'm your host, Kate Clifton. I'm a former MFL teacher who left the classroom in 2017 to set off on my own adventure. Since then, I've developed my passion for helping teachers through creating time-saving teaching resources, delivering language lessons and CPD to languages teachers, and of course, through this podcast. I've had some wonderful feedback from teachers about how my work is helping them with their everyday teaching, and I love connecting with teachers from all over the world. To get in touch, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook. I'm at Kate Languages on both, or you can email me through my website, katelanguages.co.uk. But for now, grab a cuppa, although maybe not if you're listening in the car. Sit back, relax, and enjoy another episode of the Kate Languages podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Kate Languages podcast. This is season five, episode two. And today I'm absolutely delighted to be chatting to Joe Dale. Hi, Joe. How are you? Hi, Kate. Great to be on the podcast. Um, I've just come back from a week in Sidmouth for the Folk Festival. So I'm ready to start recording, get back to work and uh, and do your podcast. Fantastic. Oh, how lovely. All refreshed and ready to go and relax and everything. Fantastic. So, I mean, you don't need a massive introduction because I'm sure the most people who are listening to this know exactly who you are. But... For anybody who doesn't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, a bit of your, a bit of background about yourself? Yeah, that's fine. No problem at all. So um, I was a languages teacher. I was teaching uh, French for 13 years, three years at secondary school level, and then 10 years at middle school level, uh, nine to 13 year olds on the Isle of Wight, which is where I am right now. And I've lived here for well over 20 years now. For the last uh, 13, 14 years, I've been an independent languages consultant. So I've traveled all over the world, certainly before the pandemic. I've, do, I've done a little bit of traveling uh, since then. But um, as with everybody, my, uh, my workflow has changed completely. But before the pandemic, I had spoken at conferences and run training in places like Australia, New Zealand, North America, South America, the Middle East, all over Europe, etc. I've worked with lots of uh, language associations here, there and everywhere. Uh, I've done quite a few keynotes and so on and so forth. And as I'm sure everyone is aware, my my passion is around how technology can enhance language learning. And as a result of the pandemic, I had to change as well as many, many people all over the world and find a way in which I could still make a living, but doing it from the, the comfort of my own study, which is where I am right now on the Isle of Wight. And so I decided to put together um, along with um, Helen Myers, who I'm sure we all know as well, who is the chair of the London branch of the Association for Language Learning, we decided to put together a series of um, webinars referred to as TILT, which stands for Technology and Language Teaching. And um, we've done uh, about 150 of those now, which are all available for free on my YouTube channel, which is um, just at Joe Dale. Um, a while ago, you were able to claim your username for YouTube. So of course, I snapped that up before any other Joe Dale snapped it up. So that was good. So officially, I'm just www.youtube.com forward slash at as in the at sign, Joe Dale, and you can find hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of free professional development, either uh, through the Tilt webinars or all the other presentations that I have done. But of course, in addition to that, because I did all of that completely for free, uh, I've been doing lots and lots of PDs with departments and associations all over the world. Uh, from my uh, study on the Isle of Wight. And I've done um, either one-off sessions or on some occasions I've done 
courses, which have been, let's say, five separate sessions over a number of weeks. And uh, I've actually been doing rather well. I've also been going to Dublin re- uh, recently, working with European teachers from all over Europe, which has been a real privilege. People from places like Bulgaria and Hungary, and then more obvious places like Spain and, and Germany and Italy and places like that. So that's been fascinating. Most of them have been English teachers, but sometimes I work with teachers who are teaching across the curriculum and doing sessions on the power of digital technology and how it can enhance teaching and learning. So it's been a very busy time, but it's been a lot of fun. Uh, And I'm also really into podcasting as well. I've been podcasting since 2006, and I've uh, been producing various podcasts recently, including the Post-Primary Languages Ireland podcast, which is now up to its sixth episode. And if you do a search for ppli.ie, you'll be able to find it and listen to those episodes as well. Yeah, I have had a bit of a listen to that. I, I have to say, I'm like, you are quite an inspiration for me doing like leaving teaching and doing other things. And like, I haven't had quite the international travel just yet, but I've got all sorts of things lined up for this academic year, including, yeah, various webinars and keynote sort of presentations and things like that as well. So um, yeah, definitely attempting to follow in your footsteps, Joe. but I have to say, not technology. <laughs> I'm not. And this is what we're going to be talking about today about how I just, yeah, I mean, you know, I've got the technology of doing a, a podcast now, um, mainly because, which is very exciting to tell everybody, you are actually going to be producing this season of my podcast and hopefully future seasons as well. Uh, but you are actually going to be producing my podcast from now onwards. So I'm so excited to be working with you as well as interviewing you for this episode as well. So that's absolutely brilliant. So yeah, so how did you get to the point of being the kind of like MFL tech guy? Is this something you've always been interested in or is it something that's developed over you know, I don't know, since you were teaching or left teaching or yeah, how's that, how's that all come about? Well, when I was a child, um, because I've, I've, I am of a certain age now, I had a ZX (laughs) Spectrum, uh, 16K, I couldn't afford the 48K. And I say I had it as in we had a family ZX Spectrum, uh, 16K ZX Spectrum and had lots of fun playing different games such as Manic Miner, for example. Um, I can remember playing that for hours and hours and hours and having to load up the game on a cassette and it making all funny noises and suddenly it might uh, stop loading, you'd have to start again and so on and so forth. So I can remember at the time of uh, being in the playground and swapping games on cassette with my friends. Oh, that's incredible. And things like that. I think, I don't know, I feel like you might have been a couple of years, a couple of years older than me, but um, I don't know. I remember that like the whole family had one computer. You probably weren't really allowed to use very much. And I remember doing, um, like, well, I went to middle school as well, actually, interestingly. And I remember at middle school, we had BBC computers and doing Granny's Garden. Did you ever play that at school? And you, it was sort of like... I, I obviously knew about BBCs. Um, yeah, it was sort of like programming. I don't know, it was a bit weird. But we didn't have, uh, I don't, well, we didn't have BBCs, but um, but I, um, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure there were lots of classic games out there that people yeah. remember. I, the one for me was Manic Miner, which was, uh, which was wonderful. Yeah, I've never heard of that one. I don't know. I think I was, I was then, uh, again, we had a family Game Boy, like the old school, you know, 1990s kind of Game Boy, and I just played Tetris on. <laughs> 
on it. And I think Super Mario, some kind of Mario thing. And that was about as far as we got. Yeah. Well, before the Spectrum, <laughs> we had a Binatone, which was even older. Um, oh my gosh. And playing ping pong. Uh, or No, Pong, sorry. Just playing Pong. That's right. Not ping pong, Pong, which was uh, revelationary. Uh, that was at the end of the 70s. I'm sort of admitting my age now already. But anyway, that was the end of the 70s. But, um, but interestingly enough, and this might be a surprise to some listeners, um, I didn't actually... From then on, I wasn't like this sort of massive geek into technology at all. I sort of, yeah, just I was just interested in other things. I really got into football and so on and so forth. And it was really when I became a teacher. And even then, it was really when the government at the time decided to come out with this Computers for Teachers scheme. And, uh, you know, in the days when they actually gave funding in the education and mm-hmm. you were able to get 500 pounds off a uh, computer, which as long as it was on the, like the recognized list of computers that you could buy. So I bought a computer. And as with lots of things in life, if you get your own device and you are enthusiastic and passionate about discovering how it all works, you can do wonderful things. So that's exactly what happened. I got my PC. I um, got a, a dial-up connection for it with again lots of funny sounds which that used to make <laughs> i remember that yes. <laughs> and um and also i had a really fantastic uh, mentor who was the um the ict coordinator at the school where i was working the middle school that i mentioned and he was incredibly helpful and supportive but uh, essentially i was you know just a great independent learner and um nothing could hold me back really so this was about 2002 and then mm-hmm. um I remember meeting Helen actually for the first time around 2003. I was um, oh, a wow. Linguascope ambassador, which I think it was one of the first organizations that had this, you know, ambassador label, which I know now is is very commonplace. You get lots of ambassadors for different um, different websites, different tools. But I can remember being a, lang- a, a Linguascope ambassador, and uh, that was a lot of fun. And that's where I met Helen for the first time, and then saw her speak at the language show and what have you when it was um, in Olympia, and thinking. I want to do that. I want to be in front of lots of people and, and, and talk yeah. to lots of people. And then from then, it just went from there. So I um, I then really got into um, the whole, well, at the time, the Linguascope website was called bonjour.org.uk. And I was inspired by the way in which it had you know interactive activities, how it gave immediate feedback. I thought that was fantastic. And that's based on what is still called, um, which was very popular at the time, called Hot Potatoes. So Hot Potatoes is a uh, multimedia suite you can uh, you could download for free from um, a university in, in Canada and make your own exercises which which at the time felt really revolutionary and I just thought this is this is fantastic this is brilliant and then I got into sort of the whole MFL resources Yahoo group which was also lots of fun and Yahoo group yeah this is pre-facebook <laughs> amazing exactly and um discovered lots of cool like powerpoints things like that i never used to use the powerpoints people very kindly shared i would just look at the um the animations in those powerpoints and then essentially take the ideas and put them into my own powerpoints because i remember at the time around 2004 my head teacher at the time had spent a lot of money on a data projector and was a bit miffed about the fact that essentially nobody was using it in the school or hardly was using it. So I like to challenge, as I always do. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna convert all my overhead transparencies oh, yeah. <laughs> into PowerPoints. And um and I I did that. Um and then I was using my projector and we had like leads everywhere, all over the table and all that, but the kids absolutely loved it. And um it really 
it really helped in lots of ways. It helped with the language learning, it helped with the motivation and everything. But in a middle school in general, the kids really like languages, I would say. And uh, yeah, it just went from there. And then sort of 2005, 2006, that's when I started speaking at conferences. Uh, I got into the whole blogging and podcasting thing. As I said, I started podcasting in 2006, so that was a whole new, yeah. whole new world. And I before most people had even had any idea what a podcast was. <laughs> yep, and I, I just loved the idea of being able to have a you know authentic conversations with people mm. and record them. And it was a quite clunky back in those days to yeah. record um, you know a, a reasonably good quality uh, audio podcast. Whereas now you can record something really, really simply. So for those geeks yeah. out there that are interested, we we're actually talking over Streamyard right now but we're also recording our audio locally and we're recording in audacity at the same time as a type of backup so it means that even though we could be thousands of miles away from each other we're not actually thousands of miles away from each other but we could be and it would sound as if we were both in the same room because of the the setup so it's it's a lot lot easier now and it just went from there really so to, in a nutshell it was uh, my interest in technology came from a need to use the technology in 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 school for word processing, for writing reports, and so on and so forth. But when I got my own device, that's when I really pushed forward, and um, nothing would hold me back. And and just yeah, reading lots of sites, reading forums before Twitter, before Facebook, and then moving on to watching lots and lots of YouTube clips, and just just connecting with the community. Really, the whole the whole MFL Twitterati community came about really because of the sort of the face-to-face events that I was organizing on the Isle of Wight, the Isle of Wight conference, as it was called, from 2006 to 2008, which was as a result of um, being a lead practitioner for the Specialist Calls and Academies Trust. But of course, those um, communities coming from the um, the LinguaNet Forum, which is a sort of a, a, the same sort of type of community as the MFO Resources community, the MFL Twitterati community really sort of drew from those roots as well as those face-to-face events as well. And it was really then a few years later, around sort of 2010, 2011, when the Twitter community really expanded because we then took those events and ran them at Southampton University. And then we were getting more numbers and it really just went from there, really. So it took a while for it to to mushroom and to um, to build a critical mass, really. But uh, look at us now. You know, it's fantastic. As I always say, it takes 10 years to become an overnight success or whatever it is. Like, I think, but I think it's true. I think people see like, oh, yeah, you know, they're doing this, that and the other. And you, you really, you know, as I was saying, you're an inspiration for people, um, for me and for other people to who want to do different things and, you know, presenting and webinars and all that kind of thing. And I think... And I think people kind of see it with me a little bit as well. And they just think like, oh, yeah, I could do that. And you think, well, yeah, I mean, you know, you're talking about things that you were doing back in 2006. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's when I was training. So that's like, you know, I don't know. I try not to think about how many years ago all these things were. But yeah, and I think I do think that's a really important thing, though, that is it does take a long time to build these things up for sure. Definitely. And yeah, the MFL, so hashtag MFL Twitterati. I'm not on Twitter anymore. I left Twitter no, about Christmas time last year for reasons that had nothing to do with the MFL Twitterati. And I do miss that kind of interaction because the MFL Twitterati community is a really positive, lovely community. I just found all the other noise around it on Twitter. Just I just didn't want to deal with that anymore. But you 
came up with the hashtag. That's right, isn't it? Well, officially, in other podcasts, when I talked about this, I've always said that my memory of how the hashtag came together was because Lynn Horne, who is a, a language teacher at Tobermory High School on uh, the island of uh, Argyllan Butte, I remember her tweeting at the time about the fact that um, Chris Fuller, who's no longer a teacher now, Chris Fullerisms on Twitter, um, or X, as I should say now, I suppose, he was organizing an event down in the southwest of uh, England in uh, Devonshire and decided, uh, which is where I've just been for the Sydney Folk Festival, that's why I've got it up in my mind. And um, Love Devon. He was organizing an event there, like a show and tell, teach me type event. And I remember Lynn at the time tweeting something along the lines of, oh, so all, are all the MFL and then space Twitterati, as in ATI being a, um, a word uh, implying community, are the MFL Twitterati all going down to Devon for your event, Chris, type thing? And I thought, ooh, I like that. I really like that. So <laughs> I didn't come up with a phrase. Or this is what I've always said anyway. I don't remember coming up with the phrase. I remember that. So you didn't invent it, but you turned it into a hashtag. Yeah, I turned it into a hashtag. But then ironically, I've never been able to find that tweet. I've looked, I've tried to look for it, but I've never been able to find the tweet. Because I think that... Um, that original... Huh. Yeah, I think Lynn basically... Well, she hasn't been on Twitter for years. And I think she may have deleted some tweets or what have yeah. you. But um, yeah, I've never been able to, but that's my memory in my old age. That's my memory of what happened. <laughs> and it was really, as I, as I said, through the events um, on the Isle of Wight, the Isle of Wight conference, and in particular, Digital Maverick, who is Drew Buddy, who I've known for many years through, um, through the British Council, through eTwinning. And I had asked him to do a session about Moodle, which is he's a real expert in, at um, one of the Isle of Wight conferences, that he was... Uh, a, real, real fan of Twitter at the time and was encouraging everyone to tweet. And this whole idea of being in a room, watching someone else's tweets come in from another room at the same event. I know that sounds commonplace now, but to me, yes, that was like, but it was, yeah. OMG, this is just absolutely, you mean I can learn about what's happening in another room when I'm not in that same room? I mean, you know. Yeah, it's amazing. That was fantastic. So I think it's down to a few people, definitely, that sort of initial rise and acceptance of the the term MFL Twitterati. And yeah, so it's, as with anything, it's a mixture of different influences, but certainly I've worked incredibly hard in pushing that, that hashtag. And when people misspell it, they put too many T's in it. For example, oh, I have to very politely say <laughs> NB, it's MFL Twitterati spelled correctly. And now I don't know if I really need to recall it MFL Xerati or whatever. MFL Xerati. Oh, no. I know that sounds terrible. I think we should stick with MFL Twitterati. Yeah. Keep it the MFL Twitterati. Yeah. It, it's officially, obviously, the word MFL, one for languages, Twitter, and then ATI on the end. You can't, you know, you can't get just ATI, not double T on the end. Yeah. Just the one T. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember seeing it misspelled a few times. In fact, it's very easy to misspell a hashtag, though it really, really is. Yeah, I, so like I say, I'm not on Twitter anymore, but I have been having a little look at threads. I don't know if you have discovered threads. I'm not on threads. I'm not on Mastodon and the other platforms that people have suggested. Mastodon, I did. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mainly just focus on Facebook and Instagram and then threads turned up and I was like, oh, what's this? And it's basically, it feels a little bit like Twitter used to feel about 15 years ago. It's quite nice. So I'm thinking, oh, oh no, they don't have hashtags on threads yet. When they do, maybe I will do MFL Threadserati. That's awful. Just rolls off the tongue. <laughs> 
just doesn't sound the same, does it? No. Uh, but people are trying to come up with words like threadjucators and uh, various different things. Yeah, you're always going to get that. But in, in Instagram, we have the hashtag MFL Insta, which Claire Wilson came up with and who is going to be on the podcast as well this season. And uh, yeah, so it's just nice to have, like, it's such a simple thing. And it's just an amazing way of connecting teachers, like across the world. It's not even just Britain, is it? Um, Right across the world, which, yeah, I think, you know, when we think back to, like, we were just talking about using BBC computers 30 odd years ago. And now being able to do this kind of thing just from your phone, like it does blow my mind. And sometimes I think you start to take it for granted. And then when you really think about it, it's just amazing. And I know like what I do would not be possible without social media and the internet and Zoom and all of these incredible things. So I think it's it's funny because I think I am not good at technology. And then when I think about it, I'm like, I do use a lot of technology and I couldn't survive without technology. I mean, I do my own website pretty much. My Actually, my stepmom's kind of similar to you in that she she's always had Macs and I've always had Macs as well. Never had PCs. And she kind of got into it probably in the 1980s, 1990s. And I remember, you know, my, my dad and stepmom were the first people I knew to have the internet. That was very exciting. And I remember them showing me the internet. <laughs> I remember they showed me like the NASA homepage. And I thought I was looking at NASA's actual computers. I was like, wow. But yeah, I didn't quite get it at the time. Yeah, but she's she's kind of similar. And she so she built my website for me initially and she still helps me if I have a bit of a crisis. But yeah, and it's just amazing actually how through doing what I do, I've actually started to use quite a lot of technology and being able to do that kind of thing is is brilliant. However, the next thing that I literally don't understand. And I feel like I've got to a point with technology where I I thought I was doing quite well. And now I'm like, AI? What is AI? Oh my gosh. So that was the thing that I really, really want to talk to you about, Joe. is first of all, what is AI? And then also we were going to, yeah, we want to have a bit of a chat about chat GPT. Did I get it right? You did get it right. (laughs) Well done. Fantastic. Yeah, the letter's right. So First of all, what is AI? Can you explain for anybody like me who keeps hearing all about AI and is just like, what is this? And also, obviously, within education as well, like, what does it even mean to be thinking about AI in education? Okay. So, as you know, AI is very, very much flavor of the month, particularly ChatGPT, which seems to be the front runner in uh, the technology to uh, make everyone's life easier, I think. And lots of people all over the world are trying to find out the way in which it can make their life easier. And I think there's going to be some winners and losers within that. Already, there are actors and people in the film industry in Hollywood who are on strike because of the fact that they feel that their their livelihoods are being um, eroded um, through the use of AI. And, um, and I think that's really fascinating and, and interesting. But I think in education, it's something to be very positive about. So AI, as we all know, it stands for artificial intelligence. I know that much. <laughs> that's, about, that's about as far as I go. <laughs> okay. So the, the idea behind AI is this idea of a large language model or LLM. And large language models have been around for years and years and years, since the 1960s. Yeah. I remember that from my um, master's, actually. I did applied linguistics master's. And that's just rung a little bell from something... Can't remember what, but yes. Okay. I think it was it was trying to develop AI that could 
use language in a way that humans use language. Yeah, exactly. And, that's and my been master's the, was back in 2011. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's been the breakthrough really with the, the, the ChatGPT technology, which is now built into lots of different um, AI tools. It's basically, you've got different skins or different um, websites, but based on the same ChatGPT as it was 3.5, and now you've now got ChatGPT four, and apparently ChatGPT five uh, is coming down coming down the tracks. But the difference between the different types of of ChatGPT is really to do with um, uh, reasoning and computational production. In other words, the idea of a large language model is that an LLM is fed huge amounts of data. So in the case of ChatGPT, OpenAI, which is the company which owns ChatGPT, which has also been bankrolled for millions and millions and millions of dollars by Microsoft as well, because of course it's a business. Uh-huh. Yes, of course. They have scraped, which is the official term, which basically means hoovered up all the publicly available information that have been written, that has been written by obviously human beings in the most part. And so within that, that is going to show, which is something which is coming up a lot, particularly in education, around bias. So the content which has been scraped by OpenAI and fed into ChatGPT, like terabytes and terabytes of information. I was on one, I was watching one webinar recently, and they suggested it was like forty-four terabytes of of data. It's probably a lot more now, but but um, that was up until November twenty twenty-one. So essentially, they took all the data on the internet up until November twenty twenty-one, fed it into ChatGPT. Now, the way that it works is. You ask it a question or you put in a prompt, which is officially what it's referred to as, and then it takes that prompt and it scans its massive database and it thinks, okay, Kate is asking me this question. I'm now going to look into my database and see if I can recognize a pattern based on what Kate has asked me, based on what many, many, many people from all over the internet have asked as well. And I'm going to piece together an answer, which I think Kate is looking for based on the prompt that she's put in. So that's how it works. So it's a little bit like sort of autocorrect. So it's sort of giving you what it thinks you want to hear. Yeah. And the more specific the prompt is, the better. So this this whole idea around prompt engineering has now come up, which means that the more precise you are with your prompt, the better outcome you'll get which I think is fascinating. So within that, as I talked about sort of biases, if you ask it a, a certain question, it might be that the answer that it gives is biased. So for example, uh, I remember reading about um, an example whereby uh, someone had, had said, could you give me the names of 10 Greek philosophers, for example, and all the Greek philosophers that ChatGPT created were all male. And the person asking the question said, aren't there any female Greek philosophers? Oh, yes, of course, here they are. But the fact was that the first response was, you know, sexist in the sense that it was just referring to, to male Greek philosophers. And this is because of the fact that, and it's been, it's been you know, shown in, in various different examples that ChatGPT, because of the content that's been fed into it, which has been mostly written by... Um, white males, I think that's my understanding. White men, yeah. So I think, but in education, I think that actually it's something to be very positive about in the way in which it can produce text very, very easily. Yeah. What it's not so good on, uh, in my opinion, is 
sort of factual information where it can easily make mistakes. And I always say, as lots of other people say as well, is whenever it produces any sort of output, always, always look at it with a sort of like with a cynical eye, because certainly having been using it for months and months now, I can say hand on heart that it's very, very good at producing different types of text. But what it's not so good on are things like um, grammar exercises or, or say multiple choice exercises when there's like a right or wrong answer, because sometimes it, um, and officially this is referred to as hallucinating, sometimes it hallucinates, <laughs> which basically means it makes things up. Amazing. So for example, one of the things which I've um, been demonstrating on uh, this four-part webinar series I've put together around AI and ChatGPT is how you can take the, the spreadsheets from popular tools like Kahoot and Quizzes and uh, Socrative and, and things like that, and you can then get ChatGPT to generate a table based on the formatting that you get in these different spreadsheets. So I've done that, and I've worked out how to do that for um, about six different types of formative assessment tool. But what's interesting is when you ask it to create the recommended format for that particular tool, sometimes it will, for example, give four possible answers, and it could be that none of them are the correct answer, <laughs> or it's just in the wrong format. I mean, it sounds like a GCSE exam. <laughs> or, it's, or it's in a different format. So what you have to do in that yeah. case is just either use a prompt, and I'm a big fan of um, a Chrome extension called Voice Control for ChatGPT, which allows you to use your voice instead of writing uh, in, okay. prompt, which is a lot quicker to do it that way. You can either say, I, I think you'll find that the past participle of such such a verb is actually this and not this. And then it's always very, very apologetic. Sort of like, you know, I'm, I apologize for the confusion. You're absolutely right. It should be this. But sometimes you have to regenerate a few times in order to get right. something you're looking for. So, Which in the end, to me, doesn't sound like it's going to, that type of thing isn't going to save a lot of time. And if you've got to check it over, I don't know. It depends how quickly you can do these things yourself. Like for me, I feel like I would be able to do that a lot quicker myself and just, just get it done and get it in there. And actually, speaking of using chat GPT and AI with language teaching, I mean, how good is it with other languages? Because I feel like, I mean, a lot of the internet is in English. Is it actually good for, you know, French, German, Spanish? I think it is. I mean, as you say, the vast majority of the content which has been fed into it is is in English. But actually, I think it does a very good job in general. There are examples which, you know, is easy to quote when it doesn't do a good job. But in general, if we're just talking about the generation of different types of text, for example, for a multiple choice question or a gap fill or this sort of thing, the actual core text, it does a very good job for, I think. But what it doesn't do as well, or you have to obviously always check it. You have to check anything it produces. You have to check, but it doesn't always do a good job in in assessment type of activities. I think. I think that it's really important to make sure that the right answer it says is the right answer is actually the right answer, and there aren't any mistakes in it. But you'd have to do that anyway. I think that it's a very good way of saving time, or as a starting point, as a way of say scaffolding the exercise that you want or just giving you inspiration on ways in which you can go with a particular uh, lesson, let's say, but you have to always, you know, use your professional judgment based on what it produces on whether it would work with your students, with your class, in your context, because you're going to know that a lot better than ChatGPT. So that goes back to this idea of prompt engineering, that if you are 
specific in your prompt of what you want the AI to produce, it will probably do a good job. Whereas if you just are too general with your prompt or just expect it to be able to produce something perfect every single time, then you're going to be disappointed. It's like with anything, you have to work at these things. And I think with ChatGPT in particular, that I've obviously been familiarizing myself with recently, occasionally, you know, it does just produce a load of gobbledygook or it just, it doesn't produce a good answer. And sometimes this has happened when I've been recording a webinar and people seem to really like that, the way that I say, okay, I can see that ChatGPT has not produced a good answer. Let's either use um, the voice control for ChatGPT extension to then add in different prompts to get what I want it to produce, which is a quick way of doing it, or I just keep clicking regenerate until it gets the okay. format or, or whatever yeah. it is that I, that I want to use. So I think there are people that just say, oh, well, you know, ChatGPT did this wrong, what have you. Yes, it will make mistakes. But I think as a starting point, in my opinion, and I know there are people that disagree with me about this in the MFL Twitterati, but I think in my opinion, it's a fantastic starting point. And with certain types of activities, it can save a lot of time, but particularly for assessment or other types of prompts that you want to put into it, which require a good deal of accuracy, it's not as good, in my opinion. I'm sure that it will get better and better and better, but you can't expect it to be able to essentially do every single job that you want to do in teaching quickly and easily without any sort of input from you. You've got it's 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 a uh, it's a back and forth process. It's it's about different iterations and working out what works best for you. But I'm I know having been in lots of different Facebook groups and actually started my own Facebook group called Language Teaching with AI, which has already got sixteen hundred members in no time at all. That people are looking for different ways in which they can cut down on their their workflow and do things more efficiently. And lots of people are looking for the same sort of ideas around uh, lesson planning or assessments. And yeah, you just got to find your own way, really. Yeah, absolutely. And, and expect it to make mistakes and and be wary of that and always check what it produces. Yeah. And I, I mean, I was, you know, just thinking I have used Google Translate, like I will use Google Translate, but I will check everything. I think the interesting thing for British teachers, English and Welsh teachers in particular, who are doing GCSE, to create texts for the new iteration of the GCSE. So talking first teaching next September 2024, first exams 2026, the vocab list is quite limited for that. So I, I've been thinking like, okay, so I'm gonna I'm writing resources for the new GCSE. Because I always do sample question, like types of question, and then I always do model answers. So for the model answers, I was thinking, oh, maybe I could use chat GPT. But then I was thinking, well, if it doesn't include... So what I'm trying to do with my resources is only use language from the prescribed vocab list because I want to show that you can create answers to sample GCSE questions. You can create model answers that should be, you know, the top level grade only using the prescribed vocab list. So I'm thinking for those purposes... Unless, I don't know, unless you put all of the vocab into chat GPT. I mean, I, I, I can't work out how I would use it in that situation. I don't know whether you've got an idea of how you could actually <laughs> tell me how to make my resources. And yeah, and I think, part, I mean, I enjoy, I actually really enjoy coming up with text and, you know, writing things like that. But yeah, I mean, is it possible to do that? Or, and this is another thing I was thinking is like GCSE language is slightly 
different to real French or German or Spanish in, in my experience. So I feel like you would have you would have to check it quite a lot. But yeah, have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, you would. So again, the more precise you are in your prompt, the better outcome you're going to produce. So if you were to say a GCSE style text, then it would have an understanding of that. It wouldn't have the most up-to-date understanding of that. As I said, the contents that's been fed into it is goes up to November 2021. But you can certainly say, I'd like you to include these words in your text. That would be fine. What it wouldn't be able to cope with is you sort of suggesting that out of, let's say, 1,200 words, that it creates text based from these 1,200 words, certainly in the free version, in the paid-for version, which works out about sort of £19 a month, which is using ChatGPT4, which has more sort of reasoning power, you can use what's called a code interpreter, which allows you to essentially upload files. So I haven't played with this myself, but I'm sure there are people out there that have, that you could upload an Excel spreadsheet, for example, with all the vocabulary into it, and it could then potentially analyze that and then use that as the source for text that wow. you want to write, which could be something which is uh, possible, I think. But if you wanted to have it more more straightforward than that, if you, let's say, put in 10, 15 words, um, say, could you please write a text including these 10, 15 words, then it would be able to do that no problem at all in the free version. But if you try to input too much text in one go, it will tell you that the the text is too long. So for example, to give an, another idea around that, one thing I've enjoyed playing with around recently is the fact that with most YouTube clips, it generates through AI a, um, a transcript automatically. So once you've got that transcript, you just, for those people that don't know, you click on the three dots underneath the player and it will say transcript or show transcript. You click on that. And if it's available, obviously it will it will be there. If it's not available, then obviously you can't do this in the same way, but you can then take that transcript. And I found if it's longer than say eight to 10 minutes, you need to break it down into different chunks. So what I've done is for say Edpuzzle, which allows you to create questions based on a video of any length, what I've done is I've written a prompt which asks for the transcript and then it then creates a table with different questions with the right answer and then it puts three other possible incorrect answers um, underneath and it also gives the timestamp. So by using the transcript from YouTube, it can analyze the timestamps and then give you an approximate point within the video when that question would be appropriate and would would um, be uh, at that at that time, it occasionally gets things a bit wrong. Okay. It gets a few seconds yeah, out, yeah. but if you do it with more than eight to ten minutes chunks, it will start to hallucinate or make things up. So what I've done is I've let's say it's a thirty-minute video. I'll divide the transcript into eight to ten-minute chunks and put those into. So I'll say to ChatGPT, okay, this is part one of the transcript. I'll do that. Then I'll say, right, this is part two. This is part three, and then from there. It can then create three different tables, and then all you have to do is sort of copy and paste those into into one big table, and then put that information using the timestamps. You just play the the video in Edpuzzle, and then move the the playhead to that point, and then just see if it is more or less the right timing for when that question needs to come up. And it's just a great way of um, saving time. But if you were to let's say input all 30 minutes in one go, it will just say, oh, this this message is too long. You need to cut it down type thing. So again, it's working out what it does well and workarounds for what you want it to achieve 
without getting messages like this message is too long. So right. yeah. again, it's just it's just working out the language in which ChatGPT can understand. And another thing which I've tried on that same point, another thing which I've tried recently is you give it different iterations, different prompts to produce the outcome you're looking for. And once you've achieved that, you can then say to ChatGPT, okay, this is the outcome I'm looking for. Thank you so much for generating this. Can you now write me a prompt that will create the same outcome but that would work in a new chat. So for those people that don't know, it has a type of memory. What that means is you can put in information into a new chat and it will then be able to scan back any other information that you've put in in that same chat. So when you say, for example, could you summarize this? It knows what this refers to because it's already in that chat. That's incredible. Whereas... If you were to then go to a new chat and say, could you summarize this? It doesn't know what this refers to. Right, okay. Does that make sense? So if you then produce the outcome you want and then say to ChatGPT, could you now create a prompt which will work if I put this prompt into a new chat? In other words, it doesn't have anything to scan back and look at. Then normally says, yes, no problem. And normally it does a good job, but sometimes it doesn't. In which case, you go back to the original chat and said, look, I got this error message. Then it will apologize profusely and then have another go. And by doing that, I found that works really well, particularly for more complicated prompts, because it will use the language that it obviously recognizes and understands. And therefore, it's more likely to then produce the outcome that you're looking for. So it can take a little bit of time and a few iterations to get that outcome you want. For example, I've tried to um, get ChatGPT to generate sentence builders, which I know would be amazing for um, lots of the languages community, but I have not been able to do it. So if anyone out there has been able to work out how to make a <laughs> sentence builder using ChatGPT, do let me know. It's it's very good at making tables, but it's not good at making sentence builders. But um, yeah. for other examples, I have found that by asking it to make its own prompt, it does a really good job. And then it just goes from there. So it's 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 fun and games, but there's lots of exploration and lots of trial and error, I think, to get what you want. Yeah, so I was just thinking for someone like me who is completely new to ChatGPT, would you suggest just playing with it? Just, I mean, honestly, this is how basic my knowledge is. It's a website, right? Yeah. It's not an app. You don't... It is now an app as well. So first and foremost, it was a website. That's a really good point as well to make. So officially, you have to be 13 or above to create an account with OpenAI. I think you're okay there, Kate. I I think I'll be all right with that one. But from a school point of view... About whether we are seen as encouraging or allowing right. students to use ChatGPT okay. um, okay. all over the world. That's you know, that's like a it's something which people are interested in exploring, but obviously at the same time there are, you know, safeguarding issues and what have you. So the received wisdom on that really is that in uh, settings you can turn off the option for your data that you input into ChatGPT to be sent to OpenAI for training purposes. In other words, it gets stronger and stronger and stronger the more people who use it. And at the moment, there is a free version of ChatGPT, or you can go for what's called ChatGPT Plus, which, as I've said, works out about £19 per year. Therefore, if you want to, if you want to create an account, you do need to put a mobile phone number in, which again is a safeguarding issue, I think. Some schools are allowing um, students to use ChatGPT or are, are you know, not naive enough to think that there aren't going to be students who are going to be using ChatGPT. But as you mentioned earlier with Google Translate, 
there's been this issue for years and years and years of students passing off their own work. Yeah, absolutely. But it obviously is not of the same level as their typical work because they've used Google Translate and likewise with And you can tell because they use tenses yeah. that you've never taught them. I could always tell in German if they ever use the word ging, which is the imperfect of gehen to go. So like I went somewhere. Ich ging. And I'm like, well, I've never taught you that. So you've clearly used Google Translate. So yeah. But I mean, just on that note, that's why I've always said to people, don't set writing as homework. Just do it in the classroom where they've got access to things. It's not like a, a test every time. But I think the, the easiest way of getting around that is to just not do right, just not set writing as homework. And explore different types of assessment. For example, you could ask a student to talk about the text they produced, mm. um, either uh, just by them, you know, just talking about it, or they could record some sort of alternative presentation and talk about what it is that they produce. And so it'd be very easy to see very quickly whether it is their own work or whether they've just put it into ChatGPT. And there's always going to be some students who will swear blind that it is their own work, but it's very, very easy to spot uh, that. And this is particularly an issue at some um, university level yeah, when you've imagine. got. Mm students who maybe have English as a second language and producing perfect bits of work, how do tutors then assess that? Which I think is a real challenge, which, and again, again, I've watched quite a few YouTube panel discussions around that and how tutors um, at university level are dealing with that. But of course, at the same time, at secondary school level, we've got these sorts of issues as well. And I think it's, uh, it's a whole new world, really. And it's about... Yeah. It's about working our way forward. I mean, some people use uh, ChatGPT as a type of learning body. I mean, I was talking earlier about becoming, um, you know, more independent about my use of technology once I got my own computer. And one great thing around ChatGPT and, and AI in general is the way in which you can put in different questions and you can get responses back independently 24-7. You don't have to bother anyone. You don't have to go onto social media and ask the same question. You can just ask uh, ChatGPT, or maybe if you're writing an essay, let's say, or you're writing a, a bit of text, and you could say, okay, ChatGPT, I want you to play the role of a an expert French teacher. I want you to give me feedback based on the text that I've written. So I'm not asking the ChatGPT to just do the, the work for me. I'm asking it to give me feedback, and the sort of detailed oh, wow. feedback that it can give you is something that obviously any teacher could do, but it would take a yeah, lot longer. Yeah. Whereas independently, let's say at midnight or whatever, if you wanted to do that, there'd be nothing stopping you from being able to get that sort of immediate, detailed, in-context feedback. But the, there's the whole moral question around whether yeah. we should be encouraging students, et cetera, to do that. But certainly if you're over 18, or you're working at university level, then I think that it could be a fantastic boon used responsibly and ethically to um and, and to admit to your your references to say look i did use ChatGPT when i created this as a way of inspiring me and scaffolding my ideas and giving me inspiration which is something certainly when i'm putting together say presentations recently around ChatGPT, i will put in a prompt saying okay i've been asked to give a keynote to the german teacher association in um, south australia this is the audience this is what i was thinking of talking about could you put together an outline based on my thoughts and reflections, or maybe I take my four-part webinar series and, and say, use this as a model. Could you now create a 45-minute session based on this content? And it does a really, really good job. I'm not saying I'd use it straight away as is, but it does a really good job in inspiring me on how I can put things together. Yeah. 
That's really interesting as well, because I thought ChatGPT was you say, can you write me a text on this? And that was kind of all that it did. So it's been really interesting to talk to you and learn about other ways in which you can use it. Like I, I honestly really just thought, oh, it just writes texts for you. So to know that it can give you feedback or that it can do, you know, all all these other things is absolutely amazing. I kind of like, I mean, I, I would love to carry on talking to you, but I also kind of wanted to go and have a look on ChatGPT now. <laughs> Sorry. But it's good. You're inspiring me. You're inspiring me. Thank Jess. you. You're, no, you're welcome. On another podcast on that, on a similar point, um, I had the, the the classic, could you introduce yourself, Joe, type thing. And so it was on the ELT Sponge uh, podcast. So cheekily, I said, well, actually, I put this question into uh, ChatGPT earlier saying, who is Joe Dale? Is and Joe it Dale? gave me an answer that was just hilarious. Yeah, a bit scary, but hilarious. So I um, might do that. Who is Kate Languages? I love it if it just says, wow, we could tell you about Kate Middleton. That's usually when I start Googling anything, it comes up with Kate Middleton. And then I think there is a language called like Kate or something like that. So sometimes it comes up with that as well. Some, I don't know where, where this language is based. I should probably learn about it. So yeah, then it'll be like, we've never heard of Kate languages, but here's a bit of something about something completely different. <laughs> wouldn't be much fun. Anyway, yeah, we probably do need to wrap up now, actually. So you mentioned a series of webinars. Are you still running them? Are they still available for people? Where can people get more information from you about all this kind of stuff? And where can people find you in general and get in touch with you, etc.? Okay, so first and foremost, if we're still going to call it Twitter, I'm on Twitter. I'm at Joe Dale on Twitter. And that's probably one of the easiest ways in getting in contact with me. I'd also really recommend for people who want to know more about AI in particular to um, sign up to my Facebook group, which is Language Teaching with AI which um, it's only been going for a few weeks, but it's all, already got 1,600 members, which is which is great. And I'll put a link to that in the, in the show notes for everyone so they can just click and join straight away. Yeah, no worries. So uh, for that, all I would say is um, I've had lots of people trying to join. I have put together a set of questions and a, a set of rules for the group as well. So anyone wanting to join, I would just ask you to answer the questions and to agree to the group's rules. Otherwise, I will dismiss your application simply because I don't want to be in a situation because I'm the person who's doing all the admin. I don't want to be in a situation whereby I'm dealing with lots of spam comments. So that's why anyone who hasn't, for example, done either of the uh, the options of uh, answering the questions or, or agreeing to the group's rules, I'm just dismissing the application, encouraging them to sign up again. But uh, so I uh, no doubt I've, I've lost out on a few great conversations that way. But I just think that I just don't want to be spending hours and hours and hours um, yeah, going through, trawling through all the different posts and deleting spam comments. So if you want to to find out about that, then please do just find it on Facebook. That's really easy. In relation to the four-part webinar series that I talked about, so I ran that independently in uh, in May, had over 160-something people sign up to it. I then ran it again with Avant Assessment in the States, uh, which has been a fantastic uh, collaboration. So um, those recordings are still available. If you do a search for Avant Assessment ChatGPT, they will come up. And I'm planning, well, I'm already doing quite a few different um, uh, live ChatGPT-based or AI-based webinars. But if you want to purchase those four recordings, you can either buy them as a, as a bundle, which has proved easily the most popular way of getting them, which is uh, essentially 
buy three, get one free, which in American dollars is $180 for all four, which works out about 130, 140 pounds or something like that. And but you can buy them individually as well, which is about $60, which works out about 50 pounds or so. And so, yeah, do do bear that in mind. But also, yeah, if you would be interested in asking me to come to your school face-to-face or do an online session about uh, ChatGPT, AI, or anything to do with technology and languages, just let me know. And I'm also uh, starting to do whole school sessions as well, for example, in... And not just MFL. In yeah. the autumn so far, I've already been booked for three whole school sessions, training the whole staff on ChatGPT and AI. So if you're listening to this and you know that you don't have the budget in your language department to book me, then maybe yeah, you have a chat with your school. head teacher and ask me to come in and do a whole school session, which I'd love to do as well. So I'm hoping that I'm going to be riding the wave for at least a year on AI and ChatGPT <laughs> and see, see <laughs> yeah, what happens absolutely. really. But um, And again, I'll put, no, I'll put links to, to all these things in the show notes as well yeah. and your Twitter and... That's fine. Other ways of getting in touch with you. Yeah. I was just going to say, so first and foremost, I just think the important thing is that we carry on having conversations around this and sharing ideas. And yeah, there's lots very of much so. Ways in which we can do that. And this sort of podcast is a great way of, you know, giving people an insight on the sorts of things it can do. Um, yes, it is very good at just creating text, but it can also do lots and lots of other things as well. Now, maybe we'll have to do a an online workshop about it at some point as well because I love collaborating with other people on my online workshops I mean I, I run quite a few just me chatting away about various different things like the new GCSE and all sorts of things that I'm going to be doing uh, coming up but yeah I love collaborating with other people and connecting teachers from around the country and around the world I've had people from all over the place which is just yeah it's great fun it's brilliant and it definitely feels like this is a hot topic and something that people want to learn about and want to know about so I'm hoping people are going to give us some feedback on this episode as well let us know what they think so I'm at Kate Languages on Facebook and Instagram. I'm not on Twitter anymore, as I've said. I am on LinkedIn now as well. I'm Kate Clifton on LinkedIn. I thought I'd use my real name on LinkedIn. So <laughs> that's just going to confuse people, <laughs> especially people who knew me before I got married. And then they'll be like, who's this person? Oh, yeah, I know her. <laughs> um, so yes, and we, I mean, as I said, you know, I'm not on Twitter, but we've connected through LinkedIn and Facebook and various other various other ways we even did an instagram live a couple of years ago didn't we so we did there that are was great ways fun. In, i know that was great fun there are ways and means of uh, getting in touch with each other but yes i just yeah i want to run off now and go and have a look at chat gtp and see did i just say it wrong again i did just to clarify as well for those people interested the gpt part of chat gpt stands for generative so that's you know the fact it can generate a whole range of different types of text generative pre-trained so the p stands for pre-trained which is the whole idea of all that content being scraped from the internet and then fed into ChatGPT. and then the t of ChatGPT stands for transformer the way in which you can transform different types of um, activities into or di- different um, prompts into amazing uh, outcomes potentially so yeah generative pre-trained transformer maybe now i know that i might get it right because i keep saying GTP, GPT. There we go. Okay. Yeah. I won't Google chat GTP because probably won't get anything. It will probably say, don't you mean chat GPT? 
<laughs> anyway, yeah, thank you so much. And yeah, I can't wait to hear as well what people think of the quality of the podcast recording now that it's been produced properly. And I've got all these fancy things that I'm using. And um, yeah, so do get in touch, as I said, at Kate Languages on Facebook and Instagram. Get in touch with Joe at Joe Dale on Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it these days. And yeah, hopefully, uh, like I say, maybe we can do a bit of a a workshop or something on this as well at some point, Joe. That'd be fab. So thank you so much. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Kate Languages podcast. If you did, please think about leaving me a five-star review. And you can also tag me on social media to let me know you've been listening and let me know your thoughts on the episode. Also, don't forget to subscribe so the next episode of the Kate Languages podcast can be delivered straight to your device as soon as it's released. But until then, auf Wiedersehen, au revoir, adios, bye.